Good morning. I'm going to be reading this morning from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 to 15. If you'd like to follow along in your pew Bibles, it starts on page 659. Please rise for the reading of God's Word. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep, and a time to cast away. A time to tear, tear, and a time to sow. A time to keep silent, and a time to speak. A time to love, and a time to hate. A time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. It is also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is God's word. Please remain standing as we will be... Oh, are you going to... Should we, should we have him see? Oh, please remain standing as we'll be singing a hymn. We're working on keeping you standing after the scripture so we don't sit and then have to bounce back up. So Gary was on top of it this morning. But do, uh, do uh, turn in your red hymnals uh, to number 353. The words are also up behind me. Well, it's a scary thing to all of a sudden lose control. I think most of you know this, but Nebraska winters are not unlike New England. We get snow and ice there too. And I remember one Sunday morning, uh, nearly five years ago, losing control of our car on the way to church as we came down the backside of an overpass covered in ice. Our tires never once caught or gripped the pavement the entire way down. And, uh, you know, you turn the wheel, you hit the brakes, and no response, no control. It's frightening. Uh, thankfully, there were no injuries, uh, though the car had seen better days. Uh, and actually, out of the insurance payment, we were able to put a down payment on Mariah's uh, doctor bill. So, hey, but losing control is a, is a frightening thing. Uh, but perhaps even more frightening than losing control is finding out that you never had it to begin with. 
That's what Solomon discovers in our passage this morning. As he continues his search for lasting gain and significance under the sun in anything that we can experience here and now. That's what he's been looking for so far in the book of Ecclesiastes that we've been studying. Some lasting significance in this life. Uh, you know, Set aside God from the equation for a moment. In what we do day in and day out, is there any value ultimately in it? So as he's been exploring this, and this exploration uh, brings him to considering time and eternity, that forces him and us to face the jarring reality that we are not in control. But whereas we might expect Solomon, given what we've seen so far in his study, to to meet this realization like a, a watermelon against a brick wall, instead his response is more like a patient settling in for a root canal in the dentist chair. You know, he knows it's going to be uncomfortable, but given the pain and the alternatives, this is the best place to be. Now, I don't mean to imply that the sermon this morning will be like a root canal, but I can't make any promises. So Solomon takes an honest look at the dynamics of time and eternity for life under heaven, and he invites us to come along with him this morning. And surprisingly, what he finds is not the vanity or the vapor that we've come to expect. That word that doesn't even occur in our passage. Rather, we, we catch another glimpse of life from above the sun, from God's perspective to help us see that God is working out his sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful yet mysterious way. So let's make our way to Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and let's pray and invite God to open our eyes and our hearts this morning. Lord, we do thank you uh, as we think about the seasons of celebration of all of the different passing changes in our lives, that you are behind every one of them. Lord, I pray that you would help us see and understand that as best we can this morning, and that you would open our eyes to your word, you would open our hearts to your spirit, and that you would give us your perspective on life, your perspective on all these things. And that is a gift by your grace in Jesus. That's what we pray, Lord, this morning. Meet us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Ecclesiastes chapter 3 uh, clearly begins a new section, and it looks like it might even introduce a completely new conversation. Uh, verses 1 through 8 are undoubtedly the most uh, popular or best-known passage in this book, what one author has called a catalog of times. Uh, another author describes, despite the misfortune of having been made famous by the birds, this passage remains a great expression of the way that men live their lives before the Lord. And that is the misfortune in which I first became aware of this passage. I, don't, I think you have to be at least born before 1980 to even know who the birds are or what song that is, but trust me, it's better this way. But... Though we often read this poem by itself, uh, it doesn't stand by itself here in the book. 
But it's part of Solomon's larger quest for lasting gain and significance in the few days that we have on earth. Remember how he posed his opening question back in chapter 1, verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Listen to the question he asks immediately following this poem in 3, verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? Exact same question. So, so what we have here is Solomon's second major research project, if you will, as he seeks to find some meaningful way to spend our days here and now. He looked at um, possessions and, and uh, he looked at human activity and wisdom in the previous research project. Now he's going to consider time and eternity. That's what he's sliding under the microscope. What effect do time and eternity have on the significance of our days here and now? And he begins this section not with a question, but with an affirmation. In verse 1, For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So it's an affirmation. And then to show us what he means, he goes on to list 14 pairs of life events in their time, their place. Uh, 14 pairs, that, each of them containing an opposite set of circumstances. So birth and death, or weeping and, and laughing. To show us that there is an order or rhythm in all of life under heaven. Uh, one of my professors, Richard Schultz, offers, in my opinion, the best summary of what each of these poetic lines are talking about. As Schultz explains, Solomon starts by looking at the beginning and ending of life in verse 2. So first, for people and animals, there is a time to be born and a time to die. And then also consider vegetation. There's a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planting. One is planted. So beginning, ending of life. There's a time for those things. Then in verse 3, he looks at the destruction and repair of both bodies and buildings, if you will. As we live out our days in a fallen world, there is a time to kill and a time to heal. There is also a time to break down buildings, whether it's in war or renovation, and a time to build up. In verse 4, he shows us how we respond to life's different circumstances. There's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Uh, Verse 5 is a little bit harder to understand, but it seems to speak generally of joining and separating things. So there's a time to cast away stones or scatter stones uh, and a time to gather stones together, possibly referring to scattering stones over an enemy's uh, field so they can't use it for planting, as we see in 2 Kings 3. And then gathering those back together uh, to make it useful again when the war is over. So joining, separating. And also there's, there's the gathering and joining uh, in relationships, you know, concerning either friendship or perhaps intimacy. There's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. Verse 6 describes how we treat our possessions. There's a time to seek, especially when you've lost something, and there's a time to lose. 
better not to have that anymore. Uh, there's a time to um, keep and a time to cast away. And uh, similar to verse 4, verse 7, again, shows us our response to life. In this case, life's tragedies. There's a time to tear. And in the Old Testament, that's a picture of tearing your garments in grief and mourning. There's a time to tear. But there's also a time to sew, to, to, to put it back together and move forward. There's also a time to keep silence and a time to speak. Uh, now, that could be understood generally in terms of knowing when to say something and when to keep your mouth shut. Uh, it also might refer to uh, someone's initial response to tragedy, a time when you're speechless and a time when you can actually talk about it. And then finally, uh, the capstone of this poem describes the fundamental emotions of life, of human life. There is a time to love and a time to hate. Along with the social effects of those emotions, there's a time for war and a time for peace. So all of these rhythms, all of these different times in their place, these are the rhythms of life under the sun in a fallen world. Now the question comes up, whether this poem is simply describing what is, or whether it's instructing us to figure out what should be when and then to live accordingly. Now, on the one hand, we would clearly do well to keep in step with the rhythms and patterns of life. It doesn't do any good to plant your crops in the fall and try and harvest them in the spring. Uh, you know, standing at the bedside of a recently deceased loved one is not the time for comedy hour. It helps to know the difference. Um, some of us, myself included, would do well to learn the proper time for keeping something and the proper time for throwing it away. Instead, it just kind of stacks up and, and stacks up more. And so, yes, there is a certain cadence to life, and we do well to live according to it. But we would be foolish not to stop and ask where this cadence comes from. Who crafted these rhythms? Who wrote the score that creation dances to? Who wrote the play that we are acting out? There may be appropriate responses to these different situations, but what say do we have in the situations themselves? And look back at this list, at this poem in verses 1 through 8, and notice how little of this we actually control. Which one of us had any say in the day of our birth? You know, nobody consulted you about when you'd like to come into existence. Uh, and no one's going to consult you about when it's time to go. We're not at liberty to rearrange the calendar and shuffle the seasons to our liking. You know, I'm tired of this winter. I think we're just going to have summer all year this year. We, we can't do that. We recognize that there's a proper time for weeping and laughing, but we have no say in when those times come. The joy of a wedding day gives grief to the car accident, gives way to the grief of the car accident on the way to the reception. 
We have no control over those things. And which one of us, by ourselves, can cause a war to begin or bring peace and end a war? There's a pattern at play in this world, but we're not the ones crafting it or calling the shots. And in comes that shocking realization that we're not in control. We're not in control. Scholar Derek Kidner describes, looked at it in this way, the repetition of a time for this and a time for that begins to be oppressive. Whatever may be our skill and initiative, our real masters seem to be these inexorable seasons. And not only those of the calendar, but that tide of events which moves us now to one kind of action which seems fitting, and now to another which puts it all into reverse. The purpose of this poem is to show us that every matter under heaven has a proper time and place, but that we have no control over when that time and place is. So what do we do with that? There's only one thing to do. Fear. Fear. The only question is what or whom we will fear. The seemingly impersonal and dispassionate march of time or the very personal, compassionate God who weaves it all together. Which one will we fear? Our default, my default, when I realize my weakness and my inability to control things is to fear life and the whole variety of hardships that it could throw at me in any moment. Now, our hearts are filled with anxiety over the simplest things. I mean, driving back and forth to work. Is there going to be an accident today? Laying our, our children down to sleep at night and going in and checking five minutes later to make sure they're still breathing. Are they going to wake up in the morning? Hitting send for that email that you've been putting off. Is this person ever going to speak to me again? We've heard too many stories of, of freak accidents and unexpected tragedies. And so we live our lives thinking in terms of risk management. We take safety measures. Now, of course, there's much wisdom in a lot of those things. We just installed a gate at the bottom of the stairs since our infant has now learned to climb up the stairs when we're not looking. Um, So there's wisdom in a lot of those things. But oftentimes it's not wisdom that's driving us. It's fear. It's fear. The terror of what might happen if time gets its way. We may give lip service to our belief in God. But the way we live our lives agrees more with the assessment of notable atheist Richard Dawkins. That human existence is, quote, neither good nor evil, neither kind nor cruel, but simply callous. Indifferent to all suffering, lacking all purpose. We feel that, and we fear it. 
And eventually this leads us either to, to give up and resign ourselves, whether to a meaningless existence or, or to the numbing effects of some sort of escape. You know, sex, drugs, entertainment, anything that's going to take the edge of reality off. Or else we stand up in defiance against time and chance. In the spirit of William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus. Out of the night that covers me, black as the pit from pole to pole, I thank whatever gods may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade. And yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. The only problem with that is that it's hogwash. We can't do it. I mean, that is wishful thinking at best and sheer delusion at worst. Because eventually time will win, and you will lose. And even worse, if you take that attitude, you'll get crushed in the process. Because the painful reality is, even if you had the authority and responsibility to be in control, you lack the ability to execute it. And there's nothing more miserable than that. You're not strong enough and neither am I. But there's another response to the realization that we are not in control. To fear the God who is. To fear the God who is. And by fear here, I mean reverence, respect, trust, joyful surrender. This, surprisingly, is the response that Solomon advocates. And in verses 9 through 15, he explains why. In light of time's ordered march, Solomon again poses his question and and takes another look at human life under the sun. So verse 9 again. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. But again, instead of... Concluding that all is vanity, the clouds part once more and we catch a glimpse from above, a, a, from a glimpse of view from God's vantage. Listen to verse 11. This verse is the heart of this passage and it is Solomon's commentary on the poem in verses 1 through 8. So verse 11. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. The march of time is not random or callous. God is the author of time and events. And he takes, he makes every event beautiful. Fitting, suitable in its time, according to his plan. 
a plan so wonderful and expansive that there's no way for us to, to take it all in. God is working out His sovereign purposes in our lives in a beautiful yet mysterious way. If you think of God's plan for all of time and history as a great tapestry, so a large rug with all of the different colors of threads working together to to create a beautiful picture. Derek Kidner explains, we are like the desperately nearsighted. Okay, we got to get that close. Inching our way along some great tapestry or fresco in the attempt to take it all in. We see enough to recognize something of its quality, but the grand design escapes us, for we can never stand back far enough to view it as its creator does, whole and entire from beginning to end. Or to switch the image just slightly and think of that tapestry still on the loom where it's being woven. Doug Wilson describes, from the vantage underneath, little is visible but snarls and knots. But above, the beautiful pattern of the work of the loom can be seen. As Solomon has shown, we live out our lives under the loom. And everything we see is vanity. So how can we see the pattern above? The only possible answer is through faith in the sovereign God. If that's true, if God is sovereign, and that word means that he has absolute authority over time and history, that no event escapes his notice or his plan, then we can leave all our fears in his hands. And follow Solomon's instructions in verses 12 to 13. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. That this is God's gift to man. Notice the similarity between chapter 2 verses 24 and 26 that we ended with last week there is joy real joy even in the midst of vanity if there is a sovereign and good god at work behind every matter we're free from the anxiety from the fear of the callous and indifferent circumstances we might find we can enjoy the daily routine of life eating drinking working, knowing that God is working his good purposes out. We can give ourselves to serving God and doing good, trusting him to take care of the results, you know, to have the responsibility on yourselves for someone coming to know Jesus as you explain it. That's a, that's a weight you can't bear, but you can freely share knowing that God is the one who takes care of the results. And though it's not easy, and in fact can be unspeakably hard, we can even trust God when life falls apart. When the unthinkable happens and tragedy strikes. Not because we understand it, but because we are confident that God does. 
and that, that he sees the whole picture from beginning to end and that he's both powerful enough and good enough to work it out according to his plan. Now, there are some things in life that I want to understand pretty well before I do it. If I'm going to jump headfirst into a swimming pool, I want to see for myself that there's water in it. If I'm going to cross the street in busy traffic, I want to check both ways with my own eyes before my foot steps out. But there are some things that I'm okay not understanding as long as the person guiding me is trustworthy. I don't have to know enough about transmissions to agree or disagree with whether or not mine's shot. I can trust Steve Peluso to shoot me straight. I don't have to understand the, the inner workings of molecular biology and chemistry to trust a doctor's advice to put poison into my body in order to treat some cancer. I can trust the doctor. In the same way, though we may not understand what's going on, what he's doing, I can trust God to work his purposes out. Again, like a root canal, uh, it may be uncomfortable, but given the pain and the alternatives, there's no better place to be than right there in that dentist chair. It doesn't mean that I always agree or that I always like what God's doing or that I never protest. You spend enough time with me, you'll see that I do. It doesn't take away the pain, the very real pain of life in a fallen world. But it does give hope and peace and even joy because you're submitting yourself to the one person who is wise enough strong enough and good enough to do something about it. God is not some capricious Hollywood producer who writes people into the script and then kills them off willy-nilly for his own amusement. Everything he does is a finely orchestrated part of his plan, his very good plan. And he will be faithful to accomplish that plan. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. I perceived that whatever God does endures. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it. And so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Or perhaps will call the past to account. That is a picture of complete sovereign authority and power. No one can add to or take away from the sovereign plan and work of God. As Doug Wilson states, this doctrine has a hard edge. And more than one person has cut himself on it. But denial of the doctrine doesn't remove the difficulties. It just removes the possibility of finding any solace. If we take sovereignty out of God's hands, who made this earth, 
Who do we give it to? Who do we trust? Ourselves? Time and chance? Now, for some of us, the the idea that anyone can have authority over us is simply offensive. We just... we. We don't like anyone telling us what to do, let alone a God who has absolute authority. For others, we fear that, that such a belief would mean something like we're just robots. Uh, though we never see that conclusion you know, in Scripture. That's not how it understands it. Still others want to protect God's reputation and distance Him from the bad things that happen in this world, even though He's quite comfortable taking ownership for them in Scripture. But most often, we have a hard time with the idea of God's sovereignty because we don't like it that God can have more freedom for himself than I can have for myself. We want to call the shots. We want to run the show. And we're afraid that if we don't, then everything is going to come unraveling. The bottom line is we don't trust God. Either we don't think he's good enough or we don't think he's powerful enough because we don't always agree with his decisions. We think, as Tim Keller explains, if our minds can't plumb the depths of the universe for good answers to suffering, well then, there can't be any. But Solomon reminds us, we're looking at the bottom of the loom. We're looking at one small section of the tapestry. And if we look closely enough, we see that there's a whole lot more to the story, though we are unable to take it all in. And thankfully, we don't have to. Because there is a sovereign God who has both the authority and the power to bring His plan to completion. And He has proven it in the life of death, and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. We think of the the march of time and history. That's where it's all headed. Everything points to and flows out of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. That's the centerpiece of the beautiful mystery of God's sovereign plan. That's the story that makes sense of all of our stories. All of the joy and sorrow, all of our efforts to know God, all of our rebellion against God and His rule, all of human experience under the sun was folded into the life and story of Jesus. Taken upon Himself on the cross that He might deal with our sin, bear our sorrows, and bring new life and wholeness to us through His resurrection from the dead. All of it according to God's sovereign grace. When Paul Paul says, um, as he's describing what God has done in Jesus, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. Time has a cadence, but it was going somewhere. Elsewhere, Paul says, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. In Romans 5. Just on cue. 
in Ephesians 1. It says, In Christ, God made known the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. Time was heading somewhere. And God was faithful and good and powerful to bring it there in Jesus. Jesus is the centerpiece of God's beautiful mystery. Now, there was a lot that didn't make sense in his life. The God of creation takes on human flesh only to be rejected and murdered by his creation? How was that according to plan? And yet God was at work in the mystery bringing something beautiful out of it. Salvation. New life. New creation. There is hope in Jesus. Only in Jesus. Only in Christ can the mysterious parts of our lives be made beautiful if we believe in Him, if we trust in Him and His work on the cross. Faith in a sovereign God, the sovereign God who sent Christ, is the only foundation for joy and hope in a fallen world, in a world that doesn't work the way it's supposed to. If that idea is new to you, or this whole idea of Christianity is new to you, uh, and you're trying to make sense of it all, and, and maybe frustrated at staring at the bottom of the loom, I would love to talk to you. Love to talk to you afterwards. If, you know, maybe you know Jesus and, and you have trusted him, but likewise you're frustrated at staring at the bottom of the loom and, and discouraged with the cadence of life, I'd love to talk as well. Love to pray with you. There will be several people uh, up near the organ afterwards who would love to pray with <coughs> excuse me, to pray with you and to take these things to the God who is good enough and powerful enough to work out his sovereign purposes in a beautiful yet mysterious way. How do we respond when we realize that we're not in control? Rejoice that God is. Fear God. <coughs> Respect Him. Uh, honor Him and trust Him. Enjoy the gifts that He's given you in the meantime. The food, the drink, the work of your hands. Serve Him by doing good all your days, clinging to the grace that we have in Jesus bearing witness to the grace that we have in Jesus and leaving the results in God's hands, making the most of our, of our time and knowing again that our labor in the Lord is not in vain because God is working it out. Let's pray together. Lord, it's strange that something, some idea like your sovereign care of this universe can be on the one hand repulsive 
And on the other hand, the most liberating, freeing realization we've ever come across. I pray, Jesus, that your spirit would be at work in our hearts to give freedom. The freedom that we have in Christ to trust that you are working things out by your plan, according to your grace. Help us when life doesn't make sense to be reminded that you are there and that you can make sense of it, even if we can't. Remind us that we're not alone in our suffering, that you've given us the body of Christ, that you've given us your Holy Spirit right here, right now, as our comforter. Help us cling to you and rejoice in the days we have, knowing that you will be faithful to complete all your purposes in Christ Jesus. Amen.